love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's easy, especially when we think of our neighbors as our friends and family. But what do we do with those people that we really don't know anything about? The Human Family Podcast hosts conversations with guests from local religious and cultural communities to explore a more complex narrative of who our neighbors are in the greater Santa Barbara area. Welcome to the Human Family Podcast. My name is Kenny Chisholm, and I'm your host. Each episode of this podcast will generally feature myself, along with one of four co-hosts, and a local guest, although the first two episodes of this season will actually be a bit different, in that they're more of a casual table discussion with our co-hosts, two in the first episode and two in the second. All of our co-hosts have called Santa Barbara home at one time or another, so their perspectives are also featured to showcase the many people who call this beautiful place home. We'll touch on some of their religious practices, including Kunjal's practice of lighting a devo, which comes from the family of Hindu traditions, and Yasmin's practice of salah, which is central to Islam. We'll also hear about some ways that they feel particularly connected to Santa Barbara. Kunjal and Yasmin are friends of mine that I've been in conversation with for a couple years, so I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope that you do too. As we seek to better understand the context that we live in, I want to offer a Acknowledgement of the land that I'm living on, which has been stewarded by the Chumash people for thousands of years before it was forcefully taken by European settlers in 1782. We humbly seek to be in conversation with the Chumash today as they continue to lead by an example of deep spirituality and community. I would love for you two to tell us a bit about yourself, including preferred pronouns and why you wanted to be part of the Human Family Podcast. Sure. My name is Kunjal. My preferred pronouns are she and her. I moved to Santa Barbara roughly two years ago, new to the area still, but I've always been very interested in spirituality and connecting with other people. Kenny and I were introduced through a local community member and we immediately started having these really deep discussions about spirituality and social justice and everything in between. When you proposed that you wanted to do a podcast, I was like, this is a great idea because we have these conversations all the time anyways. Mm -hmm. And to have them now in a more formalized setting so that you can share that with other people and almost make it more normal to bring them into, into everyday conversation, because I do feel like people are still scared somewhat to talk about these things. You mentioned spirituality. What spiritual tradition do you come from or how would you kind of locate yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up Hindu. My parents are practicing Hindus and I consider myself as well to be a practicing Hindu. But there's a a concept that Hinduism has come from, which is called Sanatana Dharma, which is, I mean, there's not really a great translation from Sanskrit to English about this word, but it is roughly translated to the truth or the truth duty, dharma's duty or righteousness. And so it, it bypasses the, the ritualism that we see in modern day Hinduism. As I've gone through my spiritual journey, I will still go to temples and I will still participate in many of the rituals, but I have strived to understand the meaning behind all of those rituals and why do we do that? And I'm driven by science. I'm an 
an engineer by trade and I have always been interested in understanding that logical side of my brain has always Mm -hmm. taken over. And so it always drives me to seek answers through that lens as well. So I more recently, if I were to describe myself, I would say I'm a very spiritual focused person, but if I had to to attach a label, it would be that I am a practicing Hindu. Cool. Thank you for that. So much there. And we'll get to a lot more of this later, but let's hear from Yasmin. Hi, everyone. My name is Yasmin Salak, and I lived in Santa Barbara for eight years. And I got to know about this podcast because I met Kenny at an Interfaith Initiative of Santa Barbara County event. And both of us are pretty passionate about interfaith conversations, and that's kind of how we connected. So that's how I heard about this podcast. Yeah. Can you describe what's interfaith? Interfaith is when people who identify as different faiths come together to have conversations in order to connect or learn about each other. And what what sparked your interest in that general realm? I would say I was kind of pushed into it. Naturally, I have always liked learning about other people. I just, I love observing people and stuff, but specifically Mm. interfaith, I feel like I was pushed into it because demographically speaking, Santa Barbara is pretty white and there aren't Mm -hmm. that many Muslims. So when I first came to Santa Barbara, I was an undergraduate student at UCSB and I was one of the very few Muslims on campus. I kind of got started in interfaith when people in the religious studies department asked me to speak in their classes about Islam and who I am as a Muslim and also me being part of the Muslim Student Association at UCSB. We always liked having events where we introduce ourselves as Muslims and we always have people who are interested in that come to our events and that's how I came into having conversations with people of other faiths. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that something about your Muslim identity has sparked a sense of difference between you and a largely white Santa Barbara. I've recently found out that, in fact, Islam is the most racially diverse religion in the world. Is that something that has been apparent to you in your upbringing or life experience? I think in general around the world, definitely. I've always grown up in predominantly white, non-Muslim areas. So Mm. I was always somebody where if I approach a Muslim, I'm always so happy and shocked because I'm just (laughs) not used to meeting other random Muslims. But I would say, yeah, when I go to the mosque, it's just ethnically speaking and racially speaking, it's pretty different. And also, if I visit other cities, you can see there's always one community of Muslims of an ethnic background that I've never seen Mm. as Muslims before. So that's always been interesting, too. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely grew up in a very white Christian evangelical background, and that seemed relatively apparent from a young age. I mean, I... I remember when I was, I don't know how old I was, but we had a worship music pastor and he was Filipino and I called him the brown man. I mean, that's literally what I said when I was a kid, because that's how not used to people of color I was. So I grew up in a pretty, in a pretty white area as well. And realizing that 
that is not remotely the only expression of Christianity, for example, in America or much less around the world. I think that globally, Christians are not majority white, especially as there's been a lot of growth in Christianity in, in Africa and Asia. But yeah, coming to an awareness of that was definitely unique and it made me think differently about who are my people in a sense. But realizing that I also grew up in a certain denomination was kind of a interesting thing to realize. Again, growing up, I thought of myself as just Christian. That was the only label. That was the only thing that really mattered. And I'm wondering, as far as thinking about different ideas of, of denomination, are there different denominations within the traditions that you guys have come from? And is that something that you've noticed a difference between the way that you practice your own faith and how other denominations do? Yeah. So for Muslims, we're actually taught in our tradition not to have different denominations and sects. The prophet of Islam is Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And and one of the last things he warned his community for future Muslims is not to divide ourselves Hmm. um, into sects. Unfortunately, Muslims ended up doing that. So Mm -hmm. in reality, there are people who identify as Muslim different sects and denominations. But for me personally, in order to follow what we're supposed to do, although I know that like the way that I practice Islam might be different than other Muslims who practice Islam, I still make sure if somebody asks me, what type of Muslim are you? I just say I'm Muslim. Like (laughs) that's, that's it. Like I'm, Mm. I'm just not allowed to differentiate myself Hmm. Um, from other Muslims. And in response to something you just said earlier about who you consider your people Mm -hmm. and going off of the question you asked me earlier about different races and Islam, I think personally, although I'm culturally and ethnically Libyan, having grown up but born and raised in the United States, I... I always, in my head, if I ask myself the question, who are my people? It's always, it's actually always Muslims. Mm -hmm. For me, if somebody greets me with the Islamic greeting, Assalamu alaikum, like on a bus or something, I have this instant connection with them, no matter Mm -hmm. what they look like and no matter where they're from. It's how I think of who my people are. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, Yasmin, that you say that, you know, initially, or the intention of Islam was not to create any divisions or to create sects. And it's the same in Hinduism as well. And so it's really interesting to me how people start to want to build communities. And when they build those communities, they end up drawing lines. And those lines, unfortunately, end up getting drawn over something that really should be universal. And so it's similar with Hinduism where... So this is kind of a side story, but growing up, we used to learn in our history books that Hinduism is a polytheistic religion. It has many gods. And none of that is true, actually. Hinduism believes in in only God. So there being this divinity that drives the entire universe, you can call it energy, divinity. We actually believe that you could call it Allah or God or whoever, but the whole concept is that it is within each and every single person. And what's fascinating to me is that if you go to India, you will not see that at all. You will see people who will say, I worship this form of the the divinity. I worship Krishna or I worship Lakshmi and therefore I'm different or my house 
worships a specific idol or we do this practice. What's fascinating is that it all stems from the same source. And yet we as people have gone in and created these divisions. And now there's people will fight amongst themselves over whose house traditions are better than the others. And And so then the other thing that you said, Yasmin, that I, it's interesting that you see any Muslim as your people. And I, and I think that's so beautiful because I also see that with Hindus, but traditionally you don't see very many diverse Hindus culturally. You do see some, right? There are parts of Asia that are Hindu that you wouldn't expect. For example, Indonesia has a huge Muslim and Hindu population. When I went to visit for the first time, I had no idea that there were there's so many practicing Hindus in in Indonesia. And so for me, it's similar. If someone greeted me with, well, I guess we don't really have a, a typical greeting in Hinduism, but if they chose to say whatever name of God, whether it's Jay Gurudev or Jay Yogeshwar, whatever, I do feel very comfortable. But culturally, anyone from a Southeast Asian background I just, again, growing up in America and not, I grew up in a primarily white community as well. And so for me, because people practice Hinduism so differently, what brought us together and what really defined my upbringing was the culture. And I have friends who would say the opposite, that it's, it was their religion or their faith. So I think it's very fascinating how that gets defined for each individual person. And I will say that Growing up and having to find that community that of similar faith, there isn't in most areas that I've lived in, there hasn't been a prominent Hindu mandir or a gathering space. And so Mm. for me, it's really been about, okay, if I find someone who believes in a similar manner, right, they don't have to, to follow the same religion or worship the same idols that I do, or even believe in the things, but if their practice is similar to what I practice, I'm interested in building that type of community. And so I would love to have a space where I could come together and practice with people, but it's sometimes difficult because people have chosen to almost diversify within Hinduism. And so going back to your original question, I've always seen that diversity exist, even though I've been taught that everything comes from, from one source. So it was always a, a conflicting thought in my mind since childhood as to why that is. Yeah, it strikes me that we talk about, or at least I grew up having, having hearing the story of America being a country of religious freedom. People of any religion are welcome. And even though it seems like there's a bit of a, a breakdown between what we say and what we see. And I, I don't know how many churches there are in Santa Barbara, but there sure are a lot, <laughs> probably at least 30, 50 more. And we have the Vedanta temple, but it doesn't really strike me as a gathering space for local Hindu communities, for example. And that to me tells me that there's a bit of a, a breakdown between we say that Hindus are, are welcome here in Santa Barbara. And yet, where's the, the space? Yeah, so the Vedanta philosophy, there's, there's six different original Indian philosophies, if you will, 
maybe Indian is not the right word, but Vedic philosophies that were derived from the Vedas, which are these um, scriptures that were written by rishis that essentially detailed out all aspects of of life and spirituality. And Mm -hmm. each of the six different philosophies take a slightly different approach, but they all, again, they all go back to the same thing. So they all understand that there is a divinity within this universe and within the, the world that we live in and that we are part of that divinity. But then how you either achieve moksha or liberation, those philosophies take different avenues. And so Vedanta is one of them. Yoga is another one of them. And I, many people are familiar with yoga, but it's another philosophy that is derived from the Vedas, which you could argue are the cohesive texts that Hinduism is based off of. So mm-hmm. you're exactly right. The Vedanta temple just practices one of those philosophies and people again don't feel so comfortable if they don't practice that similar philosophy Mm -hmm. yes i mean do you do you find that wherever you visit in in the united states that you're able to find a community to worship with so i don't travel that much i i consider myself (laughs) a homebody but I would say from my experience, the few road trips I've taken where I do stop at a mosque to pray, it's pretty welcoming because a a mosque is not supposed to be an exclusive space. So if you walk in, people aren't going to ask you, who are you? Where are you from? But you go in, you do your individual prayer, or if there's a group prayer, you can always join. Of course, different mosques have different leaders who teach Islam and it might vary a little bit. So I've never really, it's just natural for me to think that maybe I will stop at a mosque where somebody would be preaching about something and I've never heard about it that way. But in terms of me feeling like I'm welcome or allowed to come into a mosque to to pray and do my duty, my relationship with God, I would say from my personal experience, I've always felt welcome. And in Santa Barbara, we have the Islamic Society of Santa Barbara, and our mosque is open for everybody who wants to come in and pray or learn or just meet the community. Yeah, I really felt that the first time I came to visit I came with a a friend and (laughs) he was so kind and and he took me in and showed me how to do ritual washing beforehand. And we left our shoes, went went upstairs. And I remember I saw everyone was out on the floor in the rows for, for prayer. And I thought, okay, so where do I go? I must have to sit on the side or something. And he said, no, no, you can just come right with me right on to the floor. And I was like, what? Everyone's going to know that I'm a fake (laughs) because I feel like I don't belong here. Not because of anything that anyone has said or done, but I'm just like, I think I'm the only white person here. And that feels weird for me, which is, I mean, that's kind of a different experience or being keenly aware of being racially different. I'm sure is not something that is uh, a novel experience (laughs) for either of you, but it's something that's, it's notable and it's felt when almost all of my life, wherever I go in a public space, when people started using the term a white space, I think at first was like, what do you mean a white space? Public spaces are places for everyone. But then to walk into a space that was not a a white space, I was like, oh, I feel this. (laughs) 
And that was a similar experience of attending the Diwali festival as well with you, Kunjal. I guess that was now two falls ago. I was like, I'm one of two white people here. And this is a different kind of experience. But then to, to notice that hesitance, but then kind of be like, I think I'm the only one who really feels uncomfortable about that because everyone around me seems to either just be going about their business or they seem to be smiling at me. So yeah, I, I really appreciate you saying, Yasmin, the idea that mosques are intended to be welcoming to whoever comes in because I definitely felt that. Yeah, I mean, I think we can all relate to, especially me and Kunjal, like being people of color. On the inside, I feel like people are staring at me a lot more than they actually are, just me mm. feeling out there. And I actually went one time to this music festival back in high school with, with one of my white friends. And, and at the music festival, white people were the minorities. And it wasn't like she was the only white person there. It was just there were less white people. And she definitely commented on that. And I was just like, yeah, don't worry about it. I know the feeling. You just feel like people are staring at you. But honestly, at most people just glance at you because you just look different and then go about their day. But I feel like if I didn't know you and you came to the mosque, as a white person, I would probably just glance at you like, oh, I've never seen this person before. But I would still believe that you would, you're Muslim, just again, because this doesn't have ethnic or racial requirements. So it wouldn't be strange that there's a white Muslim. So whenever I mention, oh, I grew up in predominantly white places, I think what I mean in terms of interfaith, it's just predominantly non-Muslim white spaces, just because mm -hmm. the majority of white people in the United States aren't Muslim. So mm -hmm. but if I saw you just like sitting down the rows, whether you're Muslim or not, I'd be like, it's probably a Muslim, Muslim brother right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And actually, I I think, at least my experience, and is that most religious or places of faith and places of worship are intended to be open and welcoming. And, and I think what we do as individuals is we place those barriers up. We start to think, oh, we're different. We don't look like everyone here. I know Kenny actually invited my husband and I to the, the local temple, and I'm blanking on the name. Yeah, Congregation B'nai B'rith. Okay, there we go. Thank mm -hmm. you, Kenny. And we we attended, was it Shabbat? Mm -hmm. Okay, so we attended Shabbat services on Friday and, and we actually arrived a little bit earlier than Kenny. And we were just kind of awkwardly sitting outside in the bench and both my husband and I were like, well, do we go in? What do we do? We don't know the customs. We don't know the traditions. Maybe, maybe people stay outside until we, we had no idea. And at one point, I realized how ridiculous we were being because there were so many people walking by and they were all smiling at us. And and I was like, they're probably wondering what we're doing here as well. Why don't we just go inside and start talking? And so that's what we did. We entered and we, we said hi to a few people and we ended up chatting with one of the rabbis and and then Kenny joined us. And, and it was that signal to me that we are the ones that start to place those boundaries or in our minds start to think, oh, this mm -hmm. person is different than us. But when you walk into a place of worship, I've been very fortunate that I've had so many different friends who were very open about wanting to share their faith with me. And so I've attended services in church. I've been to, in many mosques and I've also been in Jewish temples and places of worship like Gurudwaras of the Sikh religion and and every place I've gone to, I felt 
what you described, Kenny, I felt that openness and that welcoming and that sense of community and that love. Mm -hmm. And so I think that pieces of worship are designed to be open. And it's just the people, you know, like Yasmin was saying that the people who might lead them or who might run them or facilitate them, they might bring their opinions and their experiences. And so we are the ones that limit, we limit that openness but I've definitely, in all of my experience, have felt that if you're a person of faith, or even if not even faith, if you're a person who believes in that relationship with other people, that you are going to be open and welcoming and loving. And I've, and I've definitely seen that with places of worship. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like religious spaces. I mean, there seems to be kind of a thread between the idea of religions generally intending to be unitive and religious spaces intending to be unitive, but the adherents of a religion are, we're limited in our experience. So we feel uncomfortable with seeing a kind of person that we've never really interacted with. And we kind of feel like, Oh, what do I do? Do I say hi to them? I don't know what I would say, (laughs) you know? um, I think that that's where so often the best of, of religion and spirituality can help us to say, oh yeah, I'm a human, they're human. We're probably not that different. It's possible they might not speak my language, but I'm not really gonna assume that since they're at this place at my house of worship, I'll just go up and say, hey. Yeah, it's kind of like our our ignorance shows, but not ignorance in a bad way, but just a sense of having not experienced every kind of person or culture in the world and to instead see that as an opportunity to welcome someone. Yeah, I will say that I I do believe that maybe the intention initially might have been to protect sacred spaces hmm. because something that I've noticed if you if you go to a temple in India, you'll see a lot of signs that say Hindus only. And I hmm. used to get really angry when hmm. I'd walk in there and sometimes I would refuse to go in even though I was allowed in because temples again they're places of worship and they're supposed to be open and welcoming to anyone who comes with a, a, a good intent. And I think what people have started to do is say, if someone comes in and to mock or to gawk, or to maybe just come and take pictures, then I can understand why people would say, oh, well, this is mm. a sacred space and we want mm. to preserve that sanctity to a certain degree. And so maybe that's initially how that started. And then that mm-hmm. just kind of sinks in and, and that gets rooted in. And so I think it's both ways, right? It's yeah. it's that respect and that reverence for that sacred space or that, that place of worship, in addition to that place of worship being an open and safe space for, for everyone to participate in. Yeah. I really like what you said, Kunjal, about that, because I think nowadays, at least the younger generations are doing a great job of wanting to at least show that they're accepting of everybody and just very open to people of other backgrounds and identities. But I would say that acceptance isn't always sharing. Sometimes you do have to keep spaces, like you said, sacred and private to those who are actually using it because 
For example, for Muslims, Mecca is closed off to anybody who isn't Muslim. And I would say the reason for that, especially in today's age with social media, tourists go everywhere these days with cameras just to stare and just to even do things that are a little bit disrespectful, just to kind of claim that this is a space that they can do whatever they want in. And you can see that now where imagine if Mecca was open to everybody and and now you have people who are coming in with just to have their non-Muslim gaze on us just looking at Mm -hmm. people and, and, and sometimes by default people just when they stare at something that's different than them it's kind of it kind of has a connotation of of condescension and and Mm. just looking at look at all these people doing these rituals that they're so obsessed with because they Mm. don't understand the meaning of it that is why i think spaces should be sacred and i feel like a few years ago when this idea of of safe spaces first came up i feel mm. like a lot mm. of people who are privileged specifically white christian males didn't understand why they couldn't be included for it to be a safe space and it's mm. it's not because we don't accept their identities of course we love everybody as they are but it's because unfortunately of historical context and the way that the world really is, it's just a practical measure to have spaces where people can can actually be themselves, where in public with places that are actually totally open, people of the minority actually in reality aren't comfortable. Hmm. Yeah. And Kenny, you started this off by doing a land acknowledgement. I mean, we don't we don't treat this land the same way as the Chumash tribes tribe did when they were living on this land. And and so I think it's, it is very important. Again, this is something where I struggle with because I'm like, okay, any place of worship I should feel comfortable in, but I don't, unless I'm invited in, I don't feel comfortable just walking in there because it's not my place to just walk in to any place of worship. And I think that that's That's probably one of the most beautiful things about having these interfaith conversations is that you can start to develop these relationships with other people and start to understand what their relationship with God looks like. And then you might get the privilege to get invited into this, this space that's very sacred and dear to them, which brings you closer to that person. But it's very privileged to think that you can just walk in. And it's almost like the appropriation, right? It's like mm. cultural appropriation of of spaces is kind of the the word that comes to mind when we're talking, we're having this conversation. Mm. Yeah, I wanna I wanna go to a, a question that we're gonna be asking all of our guests on this podcast. Um, we talked a lot about ritual and, and traditions, and oftentimes we see something different. We don't know how to appreciate it. So we automatically, like you said, Yasmin, you, you put in this category of why are they doing that? They seem like they're obsessed with this thing. How strange, but it's just because we don't, we don't know about it. So I'd love for, for both you two to describe perhaps a, a specific religious tradition or ritual that you practice as part of your own spirituality and just kind of remove some of the, the darkness perhaps of, and people's minds or ignorance. And then what that practice means to you. Okay, so I'll talk about the ritual that all Muslims do five times a day, which is salah or prayer. So salah is one of the five pillars of Islam, and it is it is representative of basically the 
what Muslims believe to be our purpose on this earth. Everybody wonders what is the purpose of my life on on earth? Why am I alive? And for Muslims, we're we're told this in the Quran, which is our holy book. God tells us that our purpose is is none other but to worship God. So Muslims have one job during this 70 to 100 or whatever years you live on this earth, and that's to, to worship God. So God in Arabic is Allah. So that is our only job. And, and the way that we do that, other than through our actions, we believe that we should always have an inner intention of doing everything in order to please God. But a way for us to directly worship a lot is to pray five times a day. And I would say because there are physical movements in Salah, it, it might seem a little bit strange or different to people who've never seen it. So I'm here to describe what it is. So it's a series of, of standing, bowing, and prostrating a certain number of times based on what prayer we are, we're praying in the day. So we pray five times a day, one at dawn, one around noon, one around midday, one at sunset, and one at night. So it's just a way for us to recharge ourselves throughout the day and to remind ourselves what our purpose is in this life. So let's describe the dawn prayer, which is called Fajr. And so that one has two cycles of the standing, bowing, and prostrating. When Muslims are praying Salah, they face towards um, Mecca. So from the United States, the most direct trajectory is northeast. You'll usually see around prayer time if a Muslim's in a new place, they have their compass out on their phone and they're just looking for northeast. And then before prayer, we also have to be ritually clean. So Muslims are supposed to be physically clean at all times, but also specifically right before the prayer, we have to be ritually clean. And, and so we have a series of, of washing with just water before the prayer. So that keeps us ritually pure in, in terms of cleanliness. And then we, we pray. So at dawn, basically, I would face northeast. The floor around me has to be clean. So if, if you're in a place where the floor is dirty, you have a prayer mat. And then you also have to dress modestly. That goes for men and women. Just it's, it's a way to present yourself the best way that you can in front of God. And the prayer is just you speaking to God and acknowledging that he's our creator and that he's the greatest. We start by standing up and saying Allahu Akbar, which means God is greater, greater than anything, greater than the greatest. So it's just greater, not God is great, not God is greatest. It's greater than that. So we start with that. And then we stand and we first recite the first chapter of the Quran, which is Surah Al-Fatiha. And all Muslims, when they're praying, they recite it in Arabic. And then we, we recite a second chapter of our choice. And so after you do that, you can recite a short one or a long one. And then you bow. And then you stand back up and then you go down and prostrate with your forehead to the ground, your hands on the ground, forehead to the ground. And you do that two times. Muslims consider that as us being the closest. When we have our foreheads to the ground, we're closest to God. And then we stand back up and we do that another time with reciting the chapters, bowing, and then prostrating two times. And then we sit down and recite a prayer. And then we end by greeting the angels on our right and left side, just looking hmm. to the right, 
greeting them, looking to the left, and that ends the prayer. Because we're supposed to pray on time, the specific time of the prayer each day, ideally all Muslims are supposed to, when the prayer comes, drop all that they're doing and find a clean and respectable space to pray. So sometimes that means that people are going to see us praying in public and and I think people sometimes wonder, say that we're praying and, and in front of us is a tree. Maybe somebody's like, we're praying to the tree. But actually, it's it's more of a praying in a place where people aren't going to walk in front of us. So I would say that's that's a ritual that I would like to share. <laughs> mm. There's so much amazing stuff in that. I mean, it sounds really meditative as, some, as something that a lot of people... I think more so recently, or at least more recently in my own life experience, I feel like people are like, oh yeah, meditation is is a good thing. That regular ritual seems very meditative and it seems not as, well, it seems like it might be something in the realm of both duty, but also joy. Because I mean, you were describing it as a purpose of our life and that would be something that's very, I mean, what else do we want to do but live into our purpose, right? Um, yeah, I think... I think I'm I'm happy that you brought that up because I feel like especially nowadays a lot of people associate religion and spirituality with making it too serious but Muslims learn that the companions of the prophet and the prophet himself peace be upon him that was their most joyful moment of the day when they pray and that is because they're the closest to their creator and they're fulfilling their meaning in life and and that's personally that's something i i try to struggle with every day because at this point prayer still feels like a semi chore to me mm. and i really I, I just always strive to finally reach that point where prayer is my favorite part of the day and mm. and i think you mentioning that it's similar to meditation is true because meditation is all about grounding yourself and taking mm. yourself out of whatever you're in and i think that's what salah is to muslims it's mm. it reminds us to take ourselves out of what we're doing in this world, because to us, this world is just a bridge to the next life. It, it At the end of the day, it shouldn't matter to us as much as we think it does. So us taking ourselves away and grounding ourselves with our purpose and just speaking to the one who loves us the most, who is the one who's going to always take care of us is, I think it definitely, you can definitely compare it to meditation. Yeah. And certainly every time you show up for meditation, you're not always stoked to be there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. And thank you so much for sharing that. It was so beautiful. And I actually, I could relate on so many levels. So if I can take just a minute to comment on that, I would love to Yeah. before I get into my ritual, because there's a concept that I grew up with called Trikal Sandhya, which Trikal means three, and it's essentially three prayers, but you do it five times a day, actually. So there's one in the morning when you first wake up and then before each meal and then one at night. And it's the exact, I mean, what you described is the exact same thing. It's, it's that moment that you take to stop whatever you're doing and to give gratitude to your creator or in Hinduism, there's the concept of creator, sustainer, and destroyer and, or generator, operator, destroyer. There's like a, a fun acronym that for God. But it's it's that same concept where you take that time out and you just show that gratitude and that love and and then the 
the concept of bowing down and, and being close to that divine or that divinity by putting your forehead on the ground. So we also have a practice called Surya Namaskar, which in today's world, if you've attended any yoga class, you would have done a sun salutation, but that actually, it was designed, you know, there's arguments about the origin, but the way I was taught it was that it was a very meditative and spiritual practice. And essentially when you wake up, you do these sun salutations where you're bowing down to the sun and acknowledging and being grateful that the sun is part of this, this divine energy. And so I can see so many similarities between the practice of Salah. Is it Salah? Okay. And other, my own personal practices. And so I just it was really beautiful. I got goosebumps. I was like, oh my gosh, That's I didn't cool. know all of that. So thank you for explaining it. Yeah. I mean, it's cool that you can see similarities in that. And it, it always, to me, at the core of belief, no matter what you believe, I, I feel like we're all in the, heading in the same direction. If everybody has this very genuine intention of understanding why they're here and, and who their creator is, it almost seems like we're all heading in the right path. We have variations. And throughout our lives, I think all we have to do is just continue looking for that truth. Yeah. We're all on the same road. We're just taking different cars or different vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and even think about growing up, praying before meals was very regular in my Christian tradition. I think that's pretty regular for a lot of Americans. And we might not always get to it, but when we do, we're like, ah, oh, yes, this is like, this is the right way to enter into a meal. Gratitude um, to God for, for sustenance and for fellowship. Yeah, absolutely. So a ritual that I'd like to talk about is it's kind of meditation, but it's the significance of lighting, uh, a devo or a candle. A devo is essentially an oil lamp. And so the intention is that it will, or you can keep adding more oil and the flame will continue. Or as soon as the oil is done, the, the flame will go away on its own. And in addition to the Devo, you could replace idols with, with this concept. You know, everyone's heard of Diwali and they, they know that it's the festival of light, but the practice of lighting a Devo, especially when you're sitting down to pray. And traditionally people will do this any time before they're, they're sitting down to chant or to, to pray or to meditate where they will light a divo and they will gaze upon that divo and that light for a little bit. And so the significance of lighting a divo is that you are, you are removing the darkness that is in that area. And, and I know that this is a common theme across many different faiths, but you're removing the darkness and you're essentially preying upon wanting to incorporate that into your own life. So you are wanting to, the light signifies knowledge and the darkness signifies ignorance. So you're wanting to make sure that you're always going to be in the light, if you will, and you're paying reverence to that. But the other aspect is that meditation is, is it's a grounding technique, absolutely. But it's also a technique that that is very personal, right? You're not you're just sitting there. No one knows what you're doing, that you could be sleeping for all they know. You could be sitting, staring off into space, but meditation is that moment where when you, you do these different practices, if you follow the, the path of yoga, you'll prepare your body, you'll prepare your breath to go into meditation, but it's really your opportunity to become close to that divinity because you're shedding off 
everything that's around you. You're, you're, you have nothing to do. You have nowhere to be. You, you are essentially nothingness going into everything. Hmm. And that is the purpose of meditation, but it's so incredibly difficult. And so lighting the Debo is a way for you to focus in on something. And when you're looking at the Debo or the light, you are forgetting about your surroundings. And so it's actually a practice to help you concentrate. And this is actually also how how idols are used because it's so much easier if I told you both to close your eyes and not think of an elephant. What are you going to think about? An elephant, elephant, right? (laughs) Exactly. So it, it was similar back in the day, people would say, okay, well, sit down and meditate, clear your mind and everything would come flooding in. And so if you gave them an object and said, concentrate on this object, and that's, that's the practice of Dhyana, which is concentrating on an object so that you can eventually, then even the object can go away and you will be in that meditative state where you are close with the the divine. And, and yes, I mean, you said something about prayer being one of the most joyful parts of your day. It's, it's the same for meditation. Meditation is a way and prayer chanting, whatever your practice is, you experience that inner and deep joy because you truly, you're, you're shutting off all of, all of the things that are around us and you're going to the source, the source of true joy and true happiness and true love. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea of, I mean, I was, I was raised to hear the word idol and be like, Oh, no, none of those can't have any of those. But then when I look at how I've, lived my life, we do use things to concentrate on. Maybe we're just using, maybe that word doesn't, doesn't actually convey, or it's, it's been turned into something that it's not. The idea of something to concentrate on is something that's, it's probably least present within Protestant traditions, Protestant Christian traditions, but within Catholic traditions and Eastern Orthodox traditions, there's a lot of using images and figures to, to pray with as a way to connect to to God and sometimes there's a posture of asking for a saint to pray on our behalf and when you do that you concentrate on what they are the saint of part of praying with saints is recognizing that their life was recognized for a certain kind of characteristic or attribute and so we're going to focus on that as we as we take this time to pray yeah and that I mean similar to yeah creating an idol for, or not an <laughs> idol, but a facet, right? I'm going to mm. pray to goddess Lakshmi for wealth because that's mm. what I I want in my life for Sarasati, for knowledge. So yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. What's something that you appreciate about Santa Barbara specifically? And this is an opportunity to share something that a lot of our, our listeners will probably, or m- might connect with. If we don't maybe immediately connect with some of your spiritual practices, we all live or have lived in the same space and called it home. I'm interested to hear something that you really appreciate about this place that so many call home. I've only lived here for two years, but I love being so close to nature. I Mm. grew up on the East coast and 
I was always hiking and close to mountains, but I just don't do well in cold weather. And so <laughs> being here, being able to go hiking almost every weekend, just being outdoors, being able to have fresh fruits and vegetables available year round locally, being able to go to the beach year round. It's, it's just been so beautiful. The number one thing I absolutely appreciate and love about Santa Barbara is just how close to nature you are and how many opportunities there are to get out and enjoy that. Yeah, I would also say just the beauty of of nature here, especially just the juxtaposition of the beaches to the mountains here, I think is so special. I think that's one thing that really connects everyone who lives in Santa Barbara. You can tell when it's a nice day and everybody's out and you just look at another fellow Santa Barbara person. You're just like, yeah, we live in the prettiest place ever. Whenever we have friends or family visiting, we have to go outside and show them this beautiful place that we live in. What really connects us is is this appreciation of how beautiful this place is. And and also because the weather is also pretty moderate, we get so many opportunities almost every day to just go outside and appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that, that that is pretty common throughout indigenous spiritualities is, is the connection to the place itself, the connection to the land. Mm-hmm. And I can speak from my own tradition I didn't grow up caring about specific places so much. I mean, at least not, not as part of my religious tradition. And the more that I have, I, I, in college, I studied ecology and the more that we realize the environmental damage that's happening, so much of it can come down to this idea that people don't care about the places that they live anymore. So I love to hear that for both of you, the, the nature of this place is something that you care about and that there is a connection to the actual non-human land aspect of of this place i really love that yeah and and i think for muslims we believe that the earth is is an emana to us it's something that we were entrusted with Hmm. so when it comes to environmental issues and environmental justice that is definitely a muslim duty for muslims to stand up for because we believe that god gave us this beautiful earth for us to take care of it and and also to appreciate, and, and it's a sign for us to think about our creator. And, and that's what I did a lot of in Santa Barbara is going on solo walks and things. And first, admiring how beautiful this place is, but then it kind of triggers me to think about this this great creator who created something so beautiful in its perfect design. So mm. nature in Santa Barbara definitely inspires me to be more religious as well. Mm. Yeah, I would 110% agree with that because it's similar in Hinduism. You're taught that there is divinity in everything. God is present in every little twig and leaf and animal. And so just being able to be closer to nature on a more consistent basis, I do feel very connected to to that divine and and to God. And, and it's just so it's beautiful because you really, you can get lost in nature and you can see how it is our duty to protect the the earth and, and mother earth and to appreciate all that it gives to us continuously. And so it goes back to gratitude, being grateful for everything that's, that's around us and, and just changing somewhat of your mindset sometimes from being, oh, I 
I deserve this to look at what I've been given, look at how much I'm loved. And that's why I've been, been given this beautiful opportunity to, to be in nature and to see and experience all of it, all of its beauty. Hmm. Man, I want to get up and go, well, I want to go on a walk. I want to go walk in nature and I want to hop into prayer. Honestly, this <laughs> conversation, we want to do both of those things because sometimes I can see both of those as this thing I should do. And I forget that that's so much of the essence of life. So much of the joy of life is in, in doing these things that we can always do. You can always, you can always pray. You can always go out for a little walk, find some time in the day. And I know that at least I don't always do that. <laughs> How can people in Santa Barbara come to know more about your perspective, whether it be your community, or maybe it could be a book or a podcast that, that you enjoy? How can, yeah, how can our, our neighbors come to understand you and your perspectives better? I would say for the people of Santa Barbara, get to know a Muslim from Santa Barbara. The Islamic Society of Santa Barbara at this time it is closed because of COVID, mm. but hopefully when everything reopens, everybody's always welcome. In the meantime, I would say everybody should consider themselves a lifelong student and, and always put yourself in that, in that zone of what can I learn today and, and who can I learn from? So anybody who wants to learn more about how Muslims live or learn more about Islam, just find some people on the internet to learn from. In terms of specific things you can learn from, something that I always like to share, especially because unfortunately there's a huge issue of misinformation about everything because mm. the internet is so open. It's great that it's open, but it's also not great that it's open. But misinformation is out there. And, and in terms of learning about Islam, I would say Muslims believe that everybody has an inner compass that at the end of the day knows what's right and wrong. So yes, there's a truth out there. And yes, there are things for you to learn that you didn't know about. But I would say on your journey of learning, if at any time somebody is saying something that's considered a red flag to you, chances are it's not true. Chances are is that it is misconstrued. So I would say that can always be your inner compasses. Go out and learn about things that you don't know about, but also trust yourself when you feel like something's a little bit off. That's that's something I always like to tell people because unfortunately, there are a lot of li religious leaders of all faiths and, and with leadership comes power and people abuse power. And there are definitely Muslims out there who are considered leaders and they abuse their power. So, so that's why it's everybody's responsibility to remember that nobody has that much power over you. And so whenever you go out and learn something new, but something feels a little bit off, you are definitely allowed to and it's in with it's within your right to take a step back and be like this doesn't sound right so i would say that should be the mentality to use to go into learning yeah if you want to learn more about my where my spiritual practices come from and, and things like that. So definitely the Vedanta temple is a great resource. I, I believe they're also closed, but they might be doing online 
offerings at the moment. And then there, there are two other suggestions that I have. There is a worldwide organization or spiritual organization and humanitarian organization called The Art of Living. And the founder, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, actually started the movement in the US in Santa Barbara. And so it's it was actually kind of nice just being a part of that to move to Santa Barbara and to have a new appreciation for this space. And so they are doing so many offerings online. They are constantly sharing knowledge. Their goal, if you can even say that they have a goal, is just to to allow people or to bring people closer to that that pure happiness and that pure joy and that pure love. And they're doing that through teaching breathing techniques and meditation techniques and doing silence courses. And so it's a really beautiful organization. And we have uh, a few local teachers and uh, again, everything is very accessible online. So if you'd like to learn more and to, to learn more about the history, definitely check them out. And then the last thing is There are so many yoga studios in Santa Barbara and yoga is one of the philosophies, one of the Vedic philosophies. And sometimes that gets lost in just the asana practice or the physical practice, but there are seven other aspects to yoga. And so if you'd like to learn more about yoga, I encourage you to ask questions to your yoga teachers and to maybe challenge them to also learn more about this practice that they're doing and, or seek out teachers who are, who are open to sharing that in their classes. So teachers who are teachers of color or teachers of different faiths. So it's, it's an amazing practice, a physical practice. Yes, but there's just there's so much more to know and to learn about yoga. And there are some amazing, amazing teachers out there who are teaching from that perspective. So it's not just the the workout, but you also will get the the history and, and a little bit closer in terms of what those spiritual practices look like. Awesome. Well, thank you so much to both of you for joining our conversation today. It's just so much fun to to chat with both of you and to hear you you to interact with each other. I love seeing friends get together. I mean, what's better than that? <laughs> I love having these conversations because I always come away feeling like I'm going to be the person who I want to be within my own tradition, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I feel inspired to be a better Christian or to live into my Christian tradition even more through these conversations. So thank you yeah. so much. Thank you for joining us today. My favorite part of today's conversation was sharing our religious traditions. I think for me, it's not enough to just learn about the standard teachings of a particular faith. I also want to learn about how people around me incorporate their beliefs into their daily lives and why a particular practice is so special to them. Learning in this way helps me connect better with people and helps me appreciate why people believe in what they believe. Next week, we'll have a conversation with Alaa Khan, our co-producer who grew up in the Islamic Society of Santa Barbara, and Allison Lewis-Tobes, our marketing consultant who grew up in Congregation B'nai B'rith. Please subscribe to our podcast to see our latest episodes each week and share it with the people you care about. And always feel free to reach out to us at thehumanfamilypodcast at gmail.com.